I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die All right, welcome back to The Left is Dead. This is a podcast about the left and all issues related to the left. And this is a unique show in many ways because we just had a historic week. It's the post-election uh, special. This is the post-election special. And quite frankly, this, has been, this week has been such a roller coaster for me that it, it's hard to even talk about it in many ways. Um, there's a lot of things to talk about. Honestly. There's a lot of things to talk about. First of all, let's, let's, let's recap sort of, well, I don't know, um, what happened. So our guest coming up is going to be talking about some, some interesting aspects related to what he believed would happen after the election what and and frankly everything that's happening right now in the post-election surge is exactly what i thought would happen now why don't you just say who our guest is tonight because i want to bring up a few points that come up in the interview okay well our guest tonight is jp satilli and uh, he is a veteran veteran political reporter and uh just an all-around good guy good reporter very ethical reporter, I yeah, think. Pretty ethical, balanced. and I, Pretty balanced, yeah. I want to say in the interview, a couple of things come up that I, I, I that stick out to me in my memory right now that I want to address. Right. Uh, but, one, but first, let's, 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 let's get into what actually well, happened. This relates, to the, this relates to the election, so I just want to get it out okay. there while I still have this in my mind. Trust me. All right, all right, sorry, buddy. Sorry, I'm eating dumplings right now, so I'm extremely no, no. hyped. I I don't want to step on your words because of my dumplings. Go ahead, bud. But yeah, one thing we talked about was um, the idea that higher voter turnout automatically skewed Democratic. Right. Right. Um, I think this election has shown that that trend has broken. Um, well, uh, okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll it's have a closer. Dude, this election was closer than it should have been. And I think that it shows that high voter turnout does not necessarily lean Democratic anymore. And then my second point is another thing that we discussed with JP was the court, which I think are going to become incredibly relevant. So make sure if you're listening to this to listen to that part of the interview, which is closer to the end. But as we talked about the courts, even though Trump is trying to challenge in multiple states, um, the courts are going to become an important thing. All right, so let's let's. God damn, man, come on. Well, you know, it's not my fault if someone tries to call me three times in a row. What am I supposed to do? Okay. You tell your mother that you're recording a podcast. This is my sister. Uh, <laughs> God, I got you close enough. My family would never call me. You loser. Yeah. Well, let's let let's let's back up here. First of all, uh, don't. I am a loser. Uh, no, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. But also, uh, Jim, uh, I appreciated your appearance on SNL over the weekend. I think you did a really good job with your Biden impression. And then br- bringing back the Lehue hair was was pretty fucking awesome. Pretty apropos, perfect. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, you were on uh, SNL over the I, weekend. 
Yeah. Uh, my only regret is that the show is no longer funny. Right. <laughs> right. But I'll take. So let, let's let's Michaels. let's let's discuss where we're at right now. We're recording, yeah. so, recording this on a on a on this is a Monday on Tuesday. We had the election. Okay. Last and yeah, and it, it, it looked very I, I mean, I, I was tracking all of the states and I, I will admit let, let, let's talk first of all about where we were at on Tuesday. I was I was with a friend. I was watching the results come in and I'll be honest, I was pretty worried for the first part of the night. It, ha- it was eerily similar to how to 2016 went where uh, the results were coming in slowly and it looked like it was trending Trump. But what happened was it flipped as more votes came in. The thing Old- is, no, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I'm sorry. but well, well, you did interrupt, but go ahead. Go ahead. No, you can keep going if you want. You sure? <laughs> no, go ahead. The mail-in process was so different this year. You know, I think that's what was like, separated from 2016 sure that was a and big I think that was you're a about big to touch issue. on that so and, i'm sorry no 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 worries man and and you know, look it's it's important to remember that uh a lot of these states had record mail-in votes but they're not allowed legally to count them until election day so a lot of the delays that we saw with the record with the reporting of who is up had to do with that fact now some states were so far in the margins of certain candidates they were able to call it but states like arizona arizona actually went fairly soon but states like uh michigan Mm -hmm. and pennsylvania came much later but yeah absolutely this idea that the election has to be called on the night of the election is just totally absurd here in Pennsylvania, where we have a Democratic governor but a Republican legislature. That's right. Wait, wait. You're, yeah, that's right. You're in Pennsylvania. I thought you I'm, were in Michigan. No, I thought I'm, you were in Michigan. I oh. am in Michigan. Okay. Then why are you saying here in Pennsylvania? I'm saying they, but we both had the same rules. Oh, okay. Because we have a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor. The rule was that we couldn't start counting till election day. But one problem I see coming up for Trump is that um, the Supreme Court uh, actually validated Pennsylvania's decision to not count ballots until Election Day and gave them three days to do it. So if Trump attempts to go to the court to overturn that, there may be a problem. Well, look, I'm here. I'm in Oregon, but here in California. uh, No, just kidding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, no, I, I look. Okay, so what what Jim is referring to is the fact that basically within we we had a pretty good sense that Biden was going to win as soon as Michigan and Arizona and Nevada results really started trickling in. And those were trending hard. Now, granted, this was a close election in all of the key states that decided it. We're talking about 10, 20, 30,000 vote margins, which is close. it's which is too close. close for what they but sold. It, it's it, a- absolutely. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But yeah. it, but but in terms of counting to an election, in terms of what a close election actually means, no, it's not that close. Twenty thousand votes is a lot. Okay, um, thirty thousand votes is a lot. Forty thousand votes. That's a lot. You don't. You, you can recount it if you want, but you're not going to get a different result. So. 
Ultimately, they waited to call the election until Saturday morning when when Pennsylvania came in. Uh, I don't know exactly why they waited so long, but I think they wanted to be sure. At this point, Trump has lost four states that he would need to win in order to hit 270, okay? Which, that's where he's challenging. And, you know, a lot of people have been p- comparing this to, like, Bush v. Gore. No, it's not even close to Bush v. Gore. It's not because, even- Yeah, I want to say that, like, the fact is that Trump is challenging multiple states with, like, legitimate vote counts. Yeah, you know? well, look, they're going to do – okay, the, o- the only legitimate recount that he has is Georgia. Georgia was fucking close, okay? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very close. But that's the only legitimate recount he has. In the other states, he's going and, – and, and just to catch us up here, obviously, by now you know Trump is refusing to concede. He's saying mm-hmm. the whole election was, ri- uh, election was rigged. But his only legal avenue here is to provide evidence that four different states were rigged against him, and he's not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Uh, 2000 involved one state, okay? One state, Florida. It was exactly. In, it was incredibly close. Like, we're talking hundreds, hundreds of votes decided that election. With Trump, we're talking about four states and tens of thousands of votes and that decided it. So this is not going to happen. There's, it's not going to happen. There's no chance. Trump lost this fucking election. It's yeah. over. It's over. In Florida, I mean, they stopped the recount at a time in a state where the one of the candidates' brother was in charge of the Supreme Court. You know. Are you Jeb talking about two thousand? Oh yeah, yeah. Jeb was the governor of Florida at the time. Yeah. This is different, and what I brought up the Pennsylvania thing for a good reason because the Supreme Court approved Pennsylvania's extension to count like mail in and absentee ballots, right? So how is Trump going to go to the Supreme Court, or even in a? Well, he's, he's, court? he's not even going to get to the Supreme Court. That's the, what I'm saying. But the, the irony is because the Supreme Court that, already granted permission for this, right? The first the first couple days, he was saying stop the count. Okay, they they quickly <laughs> they quickly stopped saying that because they realized, oh wait, we're fucking down. Okay, so we can't stop the count if you're down because they're fucking childish morons so they forgot that you actually have to get more votes on the other side now they're saying now they're saying that there was fraud but the fact of the matter is multiple lawsuits i think two or maybe even three have already been thrown out of lower courts okay yeah to get this to to the supreme court a lower judge would have to agree to something like this and it would have to be sent up to a higher judge and then I, I don't even think it would go from the lower judge of the Supreme Court. My, my point is, I don't think this is even going to get to the Supreme Court. No. Because it doesn't, even the most conservative, zealot, conservative judge is going to require evidence. And there is no evidence. That's why I point out Pennsylvania as a specific example, because the Supreme Court gave them that time window, right? So there's no way an appeals court judge, a lower judge, is going to be like, uh, there's no way the 
there's no way an appeals court judge is going to have the gall to rule against the Supreme Court decision and then decide to send it back up to the Supreme Court. Right, right. right? Yeah, there's there's no path. Exactly. There, there's so many things that. going against him. He would have to overturn Michigan. He would have to overturn Arizona. He would have to overturn Nevada. He would have to overturn Pennsylvania. Like, right. even, even doing one of those would be extremely problematic. Extremely yeah, and, and, and like you said, honestly... Even if he manages one, this is not 2000. It is not hinging on one state. Well, I hope he doesn't get one because, quite frankly, I don't want him. I don't want them to be given any oxygen in this. I'd whatsoever. rather he not either. But even if he does, it's not enough. No, but you know? they're going to try. I mean, maybe I mean, Jim. Challenge. I think it's going to go. I, I think it's going to go beyond. I think they're going to try it in the courts, but I think it's going to go beyond the courts. I think. These MAGA people, I think they are actually going to try to intimidate the state legislatures that are GOP run. I think they're going to try and actually intimidate the electors it, and, and actually have the legislatures in those GOP states overturn the electors. I think, I think they're going to try and do that. I'm not right. kidding. I, I think they're straight up going to do anything they can. And Nevada's going to be a target, I think. I think anything they can do is going to be a target. I mean, it's look, if this, thank God, this is not down to one state or two states. Yeah, that's, this, thing, this, that's this, what makes me so confident that it's right. over. Right. Um, I mean, and we can get into what this means for a Biden administration in, in a little bit, uh, perhaps in the, in the conclusion. Yeah, let's save that for the next episode. Yeah, so. but, uh, yeah, but I mean, look, this is, this is, you know, and just today, um, we waited till the day to record this, but Mitch McConnell is now saying that he's on board with with recounts. Now, look, this is purely just Mitch McConnell and the GOP being terrified of the MAGA base. And at this point, they they're making a calculation that it is worth seeing through the lawsuits to not piss off the MAGA base, I think. Yeah. Let them this is a way of just Spelling their anger gradually over time. I think that's what Mitch McConnell is counting they, on. Because quite frankly, I think Mitch McConnell would rather have Biden than than Trump at this point. I, yeah. He's got what he wanted in terms of judges, both federal and <clears throat> Supreme Court. I, I, think, I think Mitch McConnell would rather have Biden at this point. If you listen to interviews with like the newly elected Republicans and stuff like that, they won't fully endorse trump's like conspiracies about the vote count but they'll say like oh he deserves like if he has like credible evidence he deserves his day in court you know what i mean they're they don't like him but they know they can't fully disown him right right and, and honestly and, and, i think yeah. That's what this interview with JP covers. So why don't we kind of like wrap this ending up now? But I would like to say that next week, let's have a guest on who's going to talk about like what a Biden foreign policy will look like. Right. We're going to do that. Yeah. And and fortunately, uh, while uh, admittedly this interview was recorded prior to the election, most of the issues actually pertain, pretty much all of it pertains to uh, all of the issues we talk about are still relevant. Yeah, well, uh, what was discussed was about the election and what would happen either way. So it still remains relevant. I agree. All right. So, yeah, I say so, that's it. Let's get yeah. into our interview with J.P. Sears. Uh, we re 
we recorded what a week ago yeah jp but... satilli is coming up here in a minute and uh thank you guys for listening all right so jp sotelli is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared on many independent and alternative media platforms he is currently the curator in chief for the news vandal which is a really cool news aggregation site that i use frequently uh, the latest headline there, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the empire. And JP, I kind of want to call you the news vandal because it's such a cool name. But um, I also don't have any friends that I call by just a pseudonym. <laughs> but uh, for now, I'm just going to call you JP. Nevertheless, thank you for joining us today, my friend. Uh, th no problem. Glad to. And if I start referring to myself in the third person as the news vandal, please terminate the interview. <laughs> well, you'd be you'd be totally justified in that. Uh, I think you know you can do the K George Costanza route and go down go down <laughs> the third person reference if you want. I think we'd all be okay with that. But uh, uh, JP, you and I met through the Anti Media Network. Ah, uh, yes. Um, which we. Uh, both were working far before the epic algorithmic uh, collapse or algorithmic censorship. And then I found out that you also do interviews with Clyde Lewis of Ground Zero. And I that shocked me because I thought I was the only journalist of my ilk who, who treads into that ecosystem. Uh, just to placate my curiosity, how did you how did you break into the Ground Zero community? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it was through uh, Chuck Ocelli. I do the Ocelli effect uh, every other week for an hour. And Chuck is a very well-known inside the, particularly in the, inside the research community, JFK researcher. And maybe it's through, through Chuck that it happened. I, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I was just invited on by Ron Patton. And right. I had not, I had not been, you know, I had not listened to Clyde Lewis. Um, even though when I was working in the mainstream media in Washington, D.C., in the newsroom, I was thought of as a conspiracy theorist. I don't really think of myself as a conspiracy theorist, uh, particularly anymore. That I think the whole conspiracy theory thing has been turned into sort of a laughable joke and, and tool of manipulation by people in power, actually, which is sort of ironic. Um, so, But I was interested in doing Clyde because he was interested in having me on because I think in many ways, some of my takes and what I think of about cer certain stories that he's covering kind of run counter to what his audience is looking for. Right. And so I wonder if the reason why they've brought me on repeatedly to talk about politics or as Clyde calls it when he introduces me, parapolitics, right. you know, which is great. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a fun title. Uh, is maybe to just run a juxtaposition by his audience every once in a while. And, uh, you know, if I can get some one person to understand that the deep state is not what Trump calls the deep state, but it's actually uh, the center of a Venn diagram. If you were to take a Venn diagram and make it up of the, the of big oil, big defense and Wall Street, 
and turn those three circles into a Venn diagram, at the center is what I think the real deep state is and has been since the beginning of the military-industrial complex uh, at the, after the end of World War II, not a group of bureaucrats who sit around in the State Department and plot the overthrow of Donald Trump's administration. So, and you know, the ir- irony being that Donald Trump is actually a servant of the real deep state. You hear uh, me? Yes, dude, we can hear you. Yep. So, so if I can get that message out to one or two people, um, then it's worth it. And talking to the echo in an echo chamber is really not that interesting to me ultimately you know it's much more interesting to be able to talk to people who may actually disagree with your point of view that's that's fascinating and i i think you're probably right that i mean clyde is <clears throat> very interesting uh just ho- hold on one second we'll, we'll edit this out so uh jim are you are you all good are you ready jim how can i i can hear him coughing but somehow i can't ask him a question um that's fascinating okay so jim moving forward mute yourself when you're coughing and then unmute yourself when you want to talk um okay hello yeah okay you there yes i can hear you now okay great all right i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going and I'm going to ask a couple questions and right, then... keep going with the Clyde thing so that you can close up that. that yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to pick up there. So I, I think that's a, a, a really good take on Clyde. He's an interesting person. And sometimes I, I have my own problems with the kind of narrative that ends up coming out from particularly the questions he gets from his guests. And, uh, I, you know, I went on there to promote my book and basically the, all the questions were about demons and, and stuff like that. And they, they're all big QAnon. Some of them are big QAnon people. Clyde, sure. is, Clyde is definitely not. But I actually, I have more questions I want to ask you about uh, conspiracy theories because I think that was an interesting take. But I want to back things up just a minute um, before we get too deep into the deep state uh, because I kind of want to start with more of, of the politics of the moment. Uh, and I think, you know, there's lots of reasons to be just, in general, uh, desensitized, anesthetized by the last four years, generally, and this 2020 election cycle specifically, uh, with the convergence of the pandemic, uh, an outright rebellion against the police state, QAnon, the looming specter of a civil war. For you as a kind of professional political blogger, uh, info hound, news junkie, whatever you want to, you know, call it. What for you has been the most shocking aspect of this, of this environment, of this kind of space-time coordinate we're in? Like, what, what's what's keeping you up at night right now? I think maybe how shocking it's all not become anymore. Um, how normalized it is would be, uh, you know, it's a typical answer. I think the thing that keeps me up at night is the half of all Republicans who believe some or all of the QAnon narrative and how you move forward in a nation. Let's just postulate that as this all looks on paper, it's going to play out with Joe Biden winning. Okay, so Joe Biden wins. Maybe the Democrats get to 51 in the Senate, which is which seems reachable 
and you have this shift of power, you're going to get a big exhale across the United States and particularly around the world. And what's going to happen next? What are you going to do? What's going to happen with this cadre of true believers who have a willingness to swallow anything and everything that's offered to them if they have a, a, a devotional and aspirational belief in a particular leader. How, how, do those, how does that get reintegrated into the polity? Or does it, see, I don't think it does get reintegrated into the policy. I think we'll have a break, but then I think you're going to see a cycle building. And I think it's a lot of what we've been seeing over the last 10 or, 10 or 12 days with the Hunter Biden story and the Biden story, uh, the, you know, Burisma, Chinese, you know, uh, 10 million, 10% for the big guy story that the Post is running with, is I think you're seeing the predicate laid for a continuation of the scandal cycle. It's just a reversal by the Republicans to do to, to Biden what they believe the Democrats did to Trump. And so that's going to feed this this cadre, how many million is it? I don't know if it's half of all Republicans, if Republicans, they're at, let's just say they're at, there's about maybe what, there are 30% of the electorate in terms of registration. No, they're smaller than that. It's actually, I think the Democrats are up to 30% of the of the likely voters or registered voters, excuse me, are Democrats. So Republicans are somewhere around 23, 20, 24%. You may have a good solid 15 to 20 million people who believe this. And I think the you're going to have people like Tom Cotton, who is is in many ways a far more ominous human being than even Donald Trump, if you can believe it. Now, you, I know you guys probably can believe that and probably already do. And they're going to be there's going to be a lot of jockeying to wrest control of these people. And the way you wrest control with them is to feed them more and more outrageous, scandal laden conspiracy information. Mm. And I, that's how this polity goes forward. This massive nation goes forward to try and do something or anything to ameliorate all of the social, political and economic ills that have led to things like QAnon in the first place is a uh, conundrum that I don't see is well, helpful. You, you just you just you just that was chilling, man. You made me more freaked out than I already was. Uh, that's. Because yeah, That's why it, we started this in in many ways, yeah. Like they they're gonna have to find a more efficient fascist than Donald Trump, and I do think someone like a Tom Cotton or a Ted Cruz could be more nefarious than Trump in many oh, yeah. ways, and probably more effective as well. I, I you know since we're talking about uh, you, you actually kind of like naturally hedged into a question I was going to ask you, which is uh, moving forward. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about this and then let, let Jim chime in here a little bit. But where, like, it, it's, you know, it's looking like Biden is going to win. Now, that, that could easily be wrong. I mean, the polls, you know, aren't necessarily right. Um, it, it's a mistake in thinking that the polls were as wrong as people think they were in 2016, the reality is uh, the polls tighten with considerably to within a margin of error because of FBI Director Comey's announcement that they were going to right. reopen the Clinton thing. And I think I think a lot of people forget uh, 
And that could happen here again. I mean, they're definitely trying it with the Hunter Biden thing. Uh, I'm not sure with the pandemic. I'm not sure it's going to work. But let's assume Biden wins. Where does and you kind of just answered this. Um, it's going to be a two parter. Where does MAGA go? Uh, Make America Great Again. How does that movement reform with and do, do you see a new leader stepping up or do you see a kind of splinter faction with Trump as this as this leader? Uh, do you do you think we're going to see a straight up civil war in the GOP in the same way we're seeing a rift in the Democratic Party between moderates and progressives? And then I guess this would be a third part is what, what do you see happening to the QAnon narrative? I, I've interviewed one of their thought leaders and they're certain Trump is going to win. Uh, but even if he loses, I don't see them going away. I would just imagine a reshuffling of the deck, a repackaging of the product with a new narrative. So what are your thoughts on how MAGA and QAnon are going to pivot in the event of a Biden win? Let me see if I can take all of those parts of, the, of this question and put them together. One, let's start with the Republican Party. Um, I look at the Republican Party, and I particularly look at the two, really the two most important people in the Republican Party right now, congressionally, uh, which would be, you'd have, of course, McConnell in the Senate. And in the House, it's Lynn, it's uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney famously ran afoul of Matt Gates and others in a uh, conference meeting, a, caucus, a Republican caucus, or they sometimes call it a Republican conference meeting, and uh, for not backing up Donald Trump more vociferously. And Matt Gates uh, admitted in an uh, interview with The Hill, I think, afterwards, that um, he believes that probably there are many more people in the Republican conference who agree with Liz Cheney than with him. So I think that trying to figure out to be a little bit paranoid and nefarious here, talking about conspiracies. Um, I think that maybe one of the reasons why Mitch McConnell is willing to soft, soft sell, not to not even like move forward on the, the next stimulus package on the next bailout package, the one that's supposed to be targeted towards the real needs of American people and stimulus checks, why that thing has been held up in the Senate, is I could see that Mitch McConnell saying, you know, it wouldn't be such a bad thing if Donald Trump lost. And I could see a lot of Republicans quietly saying it wouldn't be such a bad thing if Donald Trump lost, because what could ha well happen? Well, for the next two years, we'll be out of power. Every time we're out of power, we do really well with fundraising. We'll fundraise the heck out of Joe Biden's first two years by calling him a socialist and evil and attack every program that he he puts for he tries to put forward. Every president, almost every president of the, of the post-war period, post-World War II period, the first off-year election, the two years after they're inaugurated, that off-year election, congressional election, they lose control of the House or the Senate or both. So I think Republicans would be poised to take control of the House, particularly since Biden as a more as somebody who has trucked his campaign to the center to try and to uh, try to appeal to moderate Republicans and suburban women and suburban educated white men, is going to be attacked from his left and from the from the from the right by the Republicans. So he will be incredibly weakened going into that off year election. So if you could take back, let's just say the Senate and maybe come close in the House, maybe even take back the House. Uh, and then in two years after that, you run Nikki Haley and boom, you're back in the White House and you've remade the party. In the process, Liz Cheney would likely become the Speaker of the House, which I think Liz Cheney is probably 
wow. one of the more um, effective and depending which how where you sit on the political spectrum, effective or ominous figures to go along with Tom Cotton, because unlike Tom Cotton, she's actually um, a smart and strategic political operator. I think Tom Cotton is somebody who just just postures really loudly and effectively and garishly. So, and, you know, you, he's from my, uh, Tom Cotton is from my, my home state of Arkansas oh, too. So I, yes, I, have, yes. I, have uh, I didn't know you're from Arkansas. I have Little Rock, Arkansas, man. So I have a particular V I went to school with, uh, Sarah Huckabee. Uh, so I have particular vehemence towards these, these, these Southern figures. Yeah. Cotton is, he's straight out of a Sinclair Lewis novel. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> So you could, I can see where the Republicans can could see a post-Trump resurrection within two election cycles, and so, so you know, will there if that happens? This is the what you were essentially postulating with your question. There could be a splintering of MAGA world because Donald Trump, if nothing else, with his campaign, what I've seen, he's either incredibly stupid which i think is a possibility in terms of strategic uh, political strategy because i can make a case that in many ways he really got lucky in 2016 because if joe biden was running in 2016 he's not the president i mean he got he was the right he, he had the right formula insofar as he had the right laboratory to pursue his formula the laboratory being the target rich environment of hillary clinton absolutely i totally agree with you so so what I think with Trump is uh, is he has spent the last two weeks creating portability for his fan base. What I mean by that is a fan base that he can take with him to to um, to OAN, maybe right. Fox, but probably not Fox, but maybe OAN or start up a whole new you know network, which. Uh, Guo Wenjui, Wenjui, which is the he's the Chinese billionaire that was had the yacht that Bannon was uh, arrested on. They've right. been trying to build a, a media empire, and it hasn't gone well yet. But if you had Donald Trump, you would immediately get 15 million people tuning in every day, every day. Well, and not just TV, but also all they're bitching about algorithmic censorship. I think it's inevitable they're going to create a new social media branch as well other than parlor something other than parlor most sure. likely and then you have the other thing is that i think you know limbaugh is getting to the to the his sort of end of life scenario and that audience could be portable too or at least hand offable if that's a word to donald trump and then you would have donald trump as a titanic political infotainment media figure who could spend the next four years hammering away at Joe Biden and prepping himself for a return run in four years, okay, instead of Nikki Haley, you know, or to challenge Nikki Haley, or he could hand that off to, to Don Jr., who I think is the guy who is being groomed to take over. So I think too, man. I, I, so dude, you just, I, I swear, this is why I wanted to have you on, man. You just, uh, you're, you're giving me chills, man, because I think what you're saying is so plausible. Yeah, I mean... There's a there's a school of thought that Donald Trump was basically running to create a second apprentice, sort of a, an apprentice follow up. That's why he was running in 2016 in the first place. One, he needed money. He needed money to pay off his his over leveraged debt laden empire. 
there's this you know payment that he made to this front company that uh, came through a mogul, a casino mogul, not named Sheldon Adelson. We don't know where that money went. It could be up to $21 million that was put through this front company, and it just disappeared, and that probably was paying off debt. So he's got debts to pay off. He had those debts then because The Apprentice, you know, people don't realize that thing, you know, it had an epic rise, and then it tanked pretty quickly. And so I could see where he saw that media empire coming because the story goes, and this is from Gabriel Sherman of Vanity Fair, who I don't use very often at all, really, anymore on the on the rundown because his stories are basically gossipy stories. It's Vanity Fair. It's gossipy stuff. And Vanity Fair has a couple guys like and gals, uh, one of them, William D. Cohen, who is one of the more insightful uh, analysts and journalists on what's going on in Wall Street and the financialized economy. But Gabriel Sherman tells a story that way back in 2014, 15, particularly after uh, Trump was insulted by Obama and and really was seething, they would, I think, hire people, and, and maybe they did it themselves, but I know that they hired some people to listen to talk radio and create word clouds. These are the, these are the words that are used most often in talk radio. That's why at that time he used to talk about Common Core. Now, we've never heard a word about Common Core since the 2016 election, since he won, but was a part of every speech because in conservative talk radio, people were always talking about Common Core. It was a big thing, this Common Core, you know, they're brainwashing our kids with this Common Core agenda, blah, blah, blah. And that came from just listening to talk radio and saying, this is what people want to hear. And that's why Donald Trump was so well positioned, not because he he personally had it att attenuated himself to the zeitgeist of, of conservative grievance. He was told this is the zeitgeist of conservative agreement, agree, a grievance based on what we've heard on talk radio for the last six months. So and Roger Stone was one of the guys who was behind this effort. Um, so. You know, he 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 is good at at servicing an audience. And so that's what I expect him to do if he is if he loses. And, you know, you, you mentioned another thing. I think it's very important. You know, the, the whole thing about the polls being wrong in 2016, as you point out, is absolutely incorrect. Celinda so Lake, who um, came to prominence in the 90s when she was a lead Democratic pollster. So you have different types of pollsters. I like Gallup. I like uh, Quinnipiac. But I like my favorite thing is the Gallup tracking poll. Pew is very good. Morning Consult is very good. Some of the other polls don't have great uh, methodologies or they're not as thoroughgoing in their methodologies. But so when you talk about those are main polls that we consume, when you hear about Democratic or Republican pollsters, these are people who do the famous internal polling. And I know from somebody who used to be involved in in party politics and things like internal polling that these polls are actually really well done. These are a lot of money goes into them. And if you're a pollster like Celinda Lake was, particularly in the 90s, you're making good money because you're providing really specific and important data for campaigns that they don't want to release unless it's good information. Then they leak it because it makes things look better for them, of course. But Celinda Lake kind of disappeared throughout the, the aughts and the, the Obama presidency. But because of her connection in the 90s to the Clintons, she was a lead internal polar Democratic pollster for the Clinton campaign. And about 36 hours after the, the, the you know, people were still walking around dumbfounded after Donald Trump won the election, she was on, I want to say, MSNBC being interviewed. 
And it was the first time I'd seen her on TV since, you know, forever. And she said, you know, the thing is, is it wasn't that our, our polling was off. It was our turnout models. They expected, she said, up to 5 million more Democratic voters to show up on Election Day, and they just didn't show up. So those are the people who were demoralized by the Comey announcement, by the WikiLeaks drip, drip, drip scandal, by Hillary Clinton's own negatives that were driven up through the – that she carried into the election – that election cycle with her and then were driven higher by Donald Trump's very effective negative campaigning and they just didn't show up. And so the one thing that if you look at the real clear uh, politics average uh, for the national polling, she was up between two and three percent. And if you look at what she won by in terms of the popular vote, that's pretty much where she ended up. Now, at the state level, it's much different picture because it varies from state to state. But in the aggregate, the polling was correct. But the turnout models failed. And that's why everybody is freaking out about the turnout now, particularly this early turnout, because the one thing that has absolutely been a truism for politics in the decades, and I don't want to name how many decades I've been following. It's been a number of decades, unfortunately, for me. I've been following politics. Um, It's the higher the turnout, the better Democrats do. That's just a truism. There's a reason why Republicans are always associated with voter suppression since the Voting and Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. It's because they need to dampen turnout and the Democrats need to run turnout up. Let's talk about one other branch of government that we kind of brushed over here. Um, I think the Senate Republicans aren't so much concerned with their power or electoral prospects right now because they've just placed a bunch of children on the bench for like (laughs) hundreds of federal judgeships and they've secured the Supreme Court probably for the next 30 years. James, that is that is pretty much the most important takeaway of the last four years. So I mean, break down that a little bit, because, I mean, the the Republicans, especially McConnell, he seems to have basically just done completed a suicide mission. He does not care. He He does not care because what you have now, maybe that's where those bruises on his hands come. (laughs) What you have now is you have two layers. You have the, you know, the district appellate court level that has been loaded and, and, you know, McConnell was able to use that's why those off your elections are so important obama had had both houses he loses in the off year election after in his first term and that put the that put the kibosh on just about anything he wanted to do particularly in terms of filling judgeships so famously most you know merrick garland at the end of his of his second um administration his second four years so by filling those up that he is, he said, what they've created is essentially a multi-generational bulwark against legislative action. They have created a long-term de facto veto of legislative proposals, legislative action, things that are signed into law, even if you, even if the Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the presidency for the next 20 years, right? the, at It'll happen at the at the appellate court level. It may never even get to the Supreme Court, but it's likely to get to the Supreme Court. And there you have it, the veto. The veto, it's you know they've always wanted the line item veto for the president. They're very big on this this sort of ability to veto um, legislative action because it gets back to the same reason why they suppress votes and the Democrats don't because in the aggregate. The American people are moving further and further away from their policy agenda with every passing 
two-year election, two- and four-year election cycle. And so the only way that they can mitigate the loss of, of popular support for their policies, which peaked, I would say there were two peaks. One peak was the Reagan years. That was a peak. And then in a weird way, because I, I don't even know if I want to include it, because another place where their policy uh, proposals peaked was with the Clinton administration, because the Clinton administration, in my humble opinion, actually completed the Reagan revolution economically in particular, um, was with the, the war on terror. But the war on terror went wonky and then wonky, and now it's turned into the, to the decline and fall of the American empire, which is probably part of the reason why QAnon is so uh, um so effective in um, attracting people who are desperate for meaning in an empire that's collapsing like a badly made flan. I, I stole that from Eddie Izzard, by the way. I need to credit him for that. So, um, so this judicial hold, this judicial roadblock, and that's why originalism is such an important thing, because originalism to me is not so much a rigorous intellectual approach to legal analysis. It's a, it's a, um, it's an ideological, it's a intellectual fig leaf for an ideological approach that tries to limit the ability of the legislative branch to respond to the changing social, political, and economic mores and policy agendas of the mass of Americans, the majority of Americans. It's a, it's a minority rule style of governance through jurisprudence. And that is going to be a very hard thing to um, undo because, you know, one of the things that you could have is let's just say Medicare for all, not in this this administration, but I think within two or three election cycles, I can see Medicare for all finally being um, passed and that could be thrown out as unconstitutional in spite of the fact that the legislative branch is the first branch of governance outlined in the Constitution they know that they've got this. That's why they like them young and they like them religious and ideological because those people will be there for a long time to put the kibosh on anything that the general will of the American people um, produces through legislative action. Right. Presuming and that that's, they, they, they can't overturn, I mean, it's going to be, the, like you said, uh, McConnell's biggest accomplishment is probably the uh bo the the bogarting uh not bogarting uh stopping yeah. obama's you call it bogarting <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah bogarting but uh, it's it's definitely minority rule but what what he did it's a two-part thing not only did he was he able to stop obama from filling any federal judiciary seats he has stuffed them like a, a tin tin can of sardines since he's been office that's going to be hard the only thing that i think is going to take care of that is time but with with the supreme court and i have a, a later question i want to ask you about what biden could do but i mean are you one of these people that thinks expanding the court could be an answer to what you were just talking about i, I just you know i guess i'm um small c conservative on that kind of thing because i think about the unleashing of the furies i'm old enough to remember watching the Bork hearings. And that's when the torpedoing of Bork's uh, nomination, the last nomination, right, that uh, that was going to be sort of part of Reagan's legacy, the torpedoing of that uh, turned into Borking, became 
called borking. We're going to bork this guy. We're going to bork that gal. We're going to bork them. And that's when I see the, the furies being unleashed, the, the constant retribution for the last attempt to destroy a nominee that was important to the party in power. And I think if you get into court expansion, you're, you're opening up a Pandora's box, not just, not just of continual expansion of the court, but you are handing your opponents a bankable um, money-raising money gold mine issue that they're going to be able to use to um, perpetuate their own political agenda and maybe toss you out. Now, but, well, what's the alternative? Okay, I say, I, well, let me go, go, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Well, okay. Now, that would be the reality of, say, Joe Biden packed the courts, right? Yeah. This is what would happen. Now, what if there was, as you said, the majority of the country does favor more progressive policies. You know, that's been borne out time and time again. So if there was an administration providing progressive policies and that also packing the court, but this is an instrument, this is an administration hypothetically with a huge amount of popular will behind it and support. But could that be the solution if an actual progressive presidency were to happen, then pack the court? Yeah, because I think holding it, on it, to power it, via, yeah. you know, the will. I think that's people. kind of the way to go is that if you wanted to achieve this goal, I think you, you're going to have to be strategic and it's going to have you're going to have to play the long game. This is one thing. Another one. I've said this is one thing before when I talked about voter suppression and Democrats and Republicans. Here's another one thing. I don't know how many one things I'm going to come up with, in this call, but there may be a number. So uh, another one thing that the Republicans have done is played the long game. That's the name of McConnell's book. Yeah. I mean, they do it. This goes all the way back to Richard Vigory at, in, the, in the early 70s, starting with, with his direct mail um, um, inciting of conservative Christians to become activist members of the Republican Party. And they started at the level of school boards. They started winning school board elections. That's, they were thinking eventually the presidency, today the school board. I think what I've seen in progressives over the last you know, 25 years, and even the Democratic Party in general, which is much more enamored with young, charismatic leaders that they want to run for president. They put all their hopes in Bill Clinton and Obama, and they go, wow, now we've got our savior. And then that one individual cannot make on their own the transformation that they want because they don't have the infrastructure from the local, county, state, and then congressional level all the way up to try and produce the results that they want to produce because you have to have the machinery in place to get those that that end goal and so james what you're what you're proposing makes makes a lot of sense in terms of i think what you do is you take a big case like if you can get to medic if you had this progressive presidency and you had a progressive congress and you could get medicare for all and you get it passed then it would be challenged in the courts and then if you had this thing and it was very popular and people were behind it and it gets overturned by the courts, then you can make your case. You can say, look, the court itself is an anti-democratic ideological force that needs to be balanced out by a nation that has grown right. well beyond the original parameters that were the, was the structure for having a nine-member a nine person Supreme court. That's why we're going to 11. We're going to 11 because we want to 
we have a, have a court that better represents the will of the people. And you can make that argument to the people. That's one of the reasons why I think, you know, I look back, here's a weird tangent. The first five days of Donald Trump's presidency were very strange. But after the, after the big crowd size thing happened in the weekend, I believe it was that Monday Donald Trump brought in hard hats from around the country, construction workers, guys who would be building roads and bridges and steel workers. And he had these people in the, in the Oval Office and he was talking about his big, remember Infrastructure Week? He was, he was talking about his big infrastructure yeah. plan. And, I was, yeah. and there was a moment there when I said, you know what? This guy could pull it off. If he gets through a trillion dollar infrastructure plan and he rebuilds roads and bridges and people are, start, the road they were driving on last year is suddenly smooth and their muffler is not falling off and they don't have to spend $150 every, every two months to try and, and fix their car or whatever it is. Cause what the roads do to our cars is incredible. Right. So yeah, it sounded like Donald Trump, what they, you know, what the roads do is incredible. <laughs> we got to solve that. I yeah. That was scary. So, <laughs> so I was like, man, if he does this, he will, he will have a successful presidency. Of course it didn't happen. And what that gets to is, is that I think if you really want to create long-term majoritarian power that, that, that then in turn empowers an agenda to make real radical change, you've got to do specific policy things. When you have the power, lock those things in and get people, give people a sense that what you're doing actually benefits them. The ACA, Obamacare, is such a great example. When the ACA yes. was being proposed and then came out, I've, I admit this. You will find my piece. I, I think it was on, at that time, Fire Dog Lake. It's on my website. And I did. I think I did a couple other pieces where I criticized the ACA as a giant trough of money, reliable money for a health insurance industry. Health insurance is not health care, I said. We're giving money to the health insurance industry. Look at what a big boondoggle this is. It's blah, blah, blah. So I, I criticized it. Now I look back and I go, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. Because what Obama and the Democrats knew at that time is that we can't do Medicare for all now. Right. But let's lock this set of benefits in today. And then over time, people will suddenly probably come will suddenly realize that you know what this is probably a good idea as right. a matter of fact i kind of like having pre-existing conditions and all of a sudden i can get health care and you know my kid is 26 and he's still on my health insurance and it's things are kind of working out and all of a sudden the aca becomes popular which is one of the reasons why the democrats took the house in 2018 so you have to give people an actual tangible something that they can grab onto the, the Republican corollary to that is something that happened in my state of California in the late 70s was the, the Jarvis-Gan um, um, initiative, Prop 13 it was called, which put a massive cap on property taxes. That was the tax revolt that really sparked Reagan's run for the White House successful run, the tax revolt that started here in California. Reagan, right, because Reagan. Reagan was basically his political aspirations started in California. That's right. And, it, and he was part of this milieu, this Orange County generated idea of the tax revolt against the government. And that tax revolt, that 
really affected people in the 80s because it just hyped, hopped up the economy basically on a speedball of debt and tax cuts. And everybody said, wow, this actually is affecting my life. This, you know, after the late 70s, this is amazing by 84 <laughs> morning in America. You've got to give, and the Republicans have lived off of that one policy win, as bad of policies it may have been in the long term, I think it is, to go for, to supply-side economics from demand-side economics. That's a whole other discussion. But that one policy win propelled the, Democrat, the Republican Party for 25, 30 years. It still is an effective, has been an effective tool here and there. It's less effective now, particularly after Occupy Wall Street in 2008, but it still can be effective. So I want to say that I think that that's why um, a lot of people look at Joe Biden and think it's almost as if the Democrats are trying to lose because they are not in a position to promise anything that's going to make any material difference in people's lives. Well, the one thing being the infrastructure plan that Donald Trump did not deliver, if the, Repu if the Democrats deliver that in the first year, I think that that will be a fundamental game changer because that's a return right. to demand side economics. And that's the Keynesian as opposed to the Milton Friedman-esque or Friedman or Milton Friedmanism, the Keynesianism approach to econ the economy, which is to put, put capital into the hands of people who spend in the, in the working and middle classes so that they can go out and drive the economy through insertion of money into the economy directly as opposed to giving money to a bunch of people essentially playing at a casino give them you know free loans through the fed quantitative easing and give them tax cuts so that they can go and gamble in the financialized economy that actually doesn't really build anything it's really just you know it's just placing bets on a on on craps essentially is what our what the wall street economy is now the stock but market what makes me nervous about any infrastructure promises are typically, you know, there was a lot of infrastructure overhaul when Obama took office. Um, there was a lot of, you know, supposed stimulus job programs for government uh, jobs to repair roads and other infrastructure and things like that. And that panned out a little bit, but mostly it was large contracts and it wasn't ever touted as an accomplishment. Um, and there's other things that oh, the Obama administration did too, like when they didn't put the option to register to vote on the ACA website because they thought it would be too political. Yeah. There was things Obama did where I don't necessarily, I don't call them all bad, even though, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Obama administration. I won't call them all bad, but his failure to capitalize on the moment is well, something that it's, needs it's, to be it's unbelievable. About. Like he, right. I mean, Obama came in with a full house and Senate majority and that was when there was still basically a left tilt to the supreme court and obama had the popular support that you're talking about the the the, the populist will of the people was on obama's side in that and they had two years there where they could have passed some really serious shit and they didn't and then they lost it and then they lost that the house and it was over from that so why do you think they they didn't push for it at that time. I mean, is this part of just a corporate a, a basic corporatist subreality to the Democratic Party right now? Well, uh, you know, you'll find stuff I wrote for Consortium News about uh, Geithner and his economic team, who I 
thought was, I mean, I'm not, a, I was not a fan of the economic team, the people that he put in charge of managing the, the Wall Street side of the economic recovery. I think that that, that was a big, you can call it a mistake. So, you know, I'm much more circumspect about the Obama administration, about Obama, not the administration, but Obama than I was during the Obama administration. You know, it's funny, me personally, just sort of talking about algorithmic stuff and the the strangling of anti-media by, by Facebook, which was just awful because that thing was really moving. Um, so during the Obama years, I developed a very strong libertarian audience uh, because I was very critical of Obama, particularly on his military policy. I used to call him Obama dropper with the drones and whatnot. Yeah, it happened um, to a lot of people. Everybody I, got a libertarian audience. Yeah, and it was just incredible. Of course, they all abandoned me as soon as Trump became uh, president, and I started to apply the same level of criticism to Trump that I applied yeah. to Obama. <laughs> but um, the th when I look back at Obama's it, Obama's presidency, I think there are a couple things. One, he talked a lot about unity, which is another thing is which we're hearing right now out of Biden, right? Unity. We're all Americans. That right. Biden is that line. I don't see red states or blue states. Yeah. I just they're obsessed America. with they're obsessed with this idea that Republicans are going to meet them halfway. Yeah. Well, I think to be fair, it's also something that came out of 2018 when all of a sudden a lot of moderate Republican women who voted for Trump fled Trump and went and helped them take the house. And the so, party also doesn't want to come our way, too. Yeah. So they, you know, they there's an electoral reason why they're making this argument. And if there's a landslide, it will be because they they took away voters that would normally be Republican voters. That's going to be a big part of it. So there are I mean, that's what the House was built on, the House takeover. It was really uh, incredible how suburban women who lean Republican moved towards them. But in once you have power, the thing is, is then you got to use the power, even though you, you built this constituency. The question is, why don't you then when you have that power, do what the Republicans do, which is just use it regardless of right. the constituency you built to get the power. Exactly. Pursue your agenda. And I think that's something that Obama seemed unwilling to do, right? I mean, that's the, I know a lot of people, and I never voted for Obama. So, you know, I, I actually have a, a different take on how journalists should approach voting and whatnot. So, you know, I don't have a dog in that fight. It's not, I'm not, I've never been a Democrat. It's not something that I'm trying to defend the Democratic Party or anything or defend Obama because I voted for him. And I feel like I, after the fact, I want to make some case for why I voted, never voted for him. What I wonder though about Obama is, or my sense of it is, I will never know the pressure that would come with being the first black man to win the presidency, entering the White House at a time of epic economic collapse. Mm. I will that, never understand that pressure. That had, I think about what Jackie Robinson faced when he broke the color barrier in baseball. And why he was chosen was because he could, he could, he would not respond in kind to what was coming to him. And since Obama's election, we have seen the racist beast that has been unleashed in this country. That was, yes. and maybe not unleashed, the rock was turned over. And instead of them 
you know, plotting underneath a rock, they scattered everywhere and grew. And so I think that that is something he was hyper aware of. And I think that his unity message and his desire to work together and to take to take a moderate tone, I believe this is just my opinion, is a reflection of the larger socio-political and cultural pressures that he faced uniquely faced as the first black president of the United States. I, I think that's an that's a very astute observation, and I, that's something I've. I I want to get back to the, your your view on journalists and voting, but like uh, I I I was very I voted for Obama, but I was I was very very critical of him during uh, both of his terms. But in in the years since, I have. Uh, come back around to realizing what you just said and realizing that he was basically also facing a completely obstructionist Congress. But in many ways, I can see this. I mean, you're right. The Republicans pay, play an, an incredible long game. And you would think that a group awaiting the imminent arrival of the second coming of Christ and the apocalypse wouldn't <laughs> be so good at the long game, but they are incredibly good at it. Yes, they are. But, but moving forward, just so we don't get too quagmired in the Obama term here, I mean, most leftists I know, and not standard Democrats, but Democratic Socialists, hard leftists, people who supported Bernie, have virtually zero faith that Biden will tilt left at the election. Conversely, the right-wingers like Hannity and those nuts are convinced that Biden is essentially a dancing marionette controlled by Bernie Sanders and the hard left. Where do you stand on this? Could Biden end up being an FDR-type candidate who comes in during a time of desperation and actually helps the working class with health care? This is, of course, presuming they take the Senate as well. And perhaps does something big on the environment, like a Green New Deal. Like, could he prove the hard right right and serve the hard left? Or are the skeptics right when they say that this is just going to be another corporatist, neoliberal warmonger? Um, geez. I, you know, I, the chances of anything happening on any level to me seem absolutely slim. I mean, I think there's a part of this. It's just the stop with the kicking election. I just think people don't want Donald Trump in their head 24-7, 365 days a year. Right. And so, you know, I think he's, he, he's in a tough position. One. I don't think that Biden is the sharp political operative that he may have been 20 years ago, obviously, even even eight years ago. And yeah, he was coming in 2012. Yeah. What is who is the team around him? I think this is a presidency where the cabinet is going to make a big difference. I don't think that Biden is really going to be setting setting the agenda. I think he's going to be fronting an agenda. So who is going to be setting the agenda? You know, Ron Klain is going to be his, probably going to be his chief of staff. I, you know, what is, what is Ron Klain's agenda going to be? Ron, what is Ron Klain is, you know, he's not a, a progressive guy. He's, he's a, you know, he's, he's kind of a, um, a, a political machine kind of guy. I, you know, it's going to be hard. It's hard to say because I think the pressures are going to be so um, un uniquely focused coming out of this election if he wins, particularly 
the desire to tar and hobble his administration with scandal is going to be epic. It's just going to be epic. So, you know, will he, will there even be um, an appetite on the part of the American people to engage in any kind of political discussion on some kind of big initiative like, like shifting away from, from oil towards renewable energy, some version of the new green deal that Biden you know, is able to brand and modulate and make, make palatable to people who, are, who have actually swallowed some of the ideas about the new green deal being a Marxist takeover of, of, of cattle ranching. So, you know, is, is that even going to be, is there going to even be oxygen for any of that? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't predict because I don't know how the American people are going to react uh, as a polity after this election and how long this election is going to drag on afterwards. All of these things are going to, you know, a lot of, of bitter pills may be swallowed and a lot of, of poisonous seeds may be planted just trying to get to a resolution of the election after election day. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to like deflect the question and go out on a limb here. I just sure. don't, I just don't know. Cause I look at, cause you know, guys, I look at also the democratic uh, leadership in the house and the Senate, Chuck Schumer, yeah. what yeah, is not... Chuck Schumer going to, you know, now if you said to me, Elizabeth Warren is going to challenge Chuck Schumer, the Democrats take the Senate. Well, and... now hang on. Chuck just proposed a suicide prevention acts because he learned about a veteran who killed him. <laughs> You're right. So that there you go right so if you tell me that that the new speaker the uh, the new um uh, senate majority leader is going to be elizabeth warren okay then maybe you know what we've learned over the last 10 years is that maybe the most important political position in washington dc is senate majority leader right because you control the senate you really control the agenda and there's not you can sign all the executive orders you want. A lot of Trump's executive orders, I think, are not even and they're not even enforceable. They, they can be overturned also by the so, next president. Yeah. So. So, yeah, somebody could just go on a counter executive order spree. Right. So if you really want to control the agenda, you got to have so have the Senate. And so Chuck Schumer and in charge of the Senate because he's earned it because, you know, the Democrats like to play that sort of fairness game that if you've paid your dues, you get to, you get to have the position kind of thing. I think that that then becomes a problem. Then look at the house Pelosi announced today that, that even though she was made up, you know, sort of a modulated appeal way back when that she was only there for a short period of time and she wants to help to transition to the next generation. She said she wants to hold on to the, her speaker of the house. What is her agenda going to be and who's going to be feeding the Democratic agenda in the House. Who are the who are the the big talents there? I mean, everybody looks at AOC, but AOC, as I've seen over the last eight to twelve months, is starting to go along to get along, and she's starting to play ball with the Republican yeah. with the Democratic leadership. So, because she knows that that's how the Democratic system works in the House and the Senate. But, you know, who is the big thing? Is Kamala Harris? You know, I think Kamala Harris was was an adroit pick politically for for this election win to get to this election win but as somebody who's going to set the agenda inside the administration i don't see her setting 
I, I think AOC is the sleeper here. I, I think she's the one. I think she's going to pick up Bernie Sanders' platform, and I, I can see her being president sometime. And and I can see her being president in tw- twenty years. But I could see that, but maybe as like a more still as like a more establishment Democrat because as as JP said, she kind of has moved to the right because you see when the candidates who don't move to the right, like Ilhan Omar. You've seen them get primaried by out-of-state challengers with, like, millions of dollars behind them. And AOC well, seems to have at least her long-term survival in mind. And I uh, look at AOC uh, as a JP, long-term speaker of the House candidate, not a presidential candidate. Because, you know, this is, you know, there are other, you know, I'll just give you my opinion. I, If I could wish for one thing, it's that over the course of the next decade and a half of my life, that the power of the presidency is radically curtailed and contained within the original constitutional limits of the president, that, that, that the president was supposed to be hemmed in by, and that the legislative branch becomes the primary branch in American governance. Whether that's going to happen, forget, I, I don't know, because we are so addicted to the imperial presidency, and, and it fits in with our celebratainment um, culture to pin everything on one sort of super personality at the center of a political universe. Um, but, you know, there's a, there is a, there still is potentially a lot of power as Mitch McConnell has shown in the, in the Senate, on the Senate side in the legislative branch. And I wonder if, if AOC is, is if she's actually smart enough to see that the job she probably would like to have, or would be best for her is Nancy Pelosi's job and not the presidency. I I just don't see her playing as large of a role in the future as she did in the moment in 2018. I think that was a, it was a moment and it was a big moment for her to win. But at the same time, she won an election where a Democratic incumbent was pretty comfortable and didn't think a challenger yeah, could do very that. Very true. Very and true. I, I don't think she's politic as politically astute. And she already has a lot of baggage from being so public in her first few years. There's already a lot of, you know, the same type of hatred that, you know, uh, misdirected racism and stuff like that that went at Obama. There's a lot of that already out there and a lot of horrible vitriol already surrounding AOC, even as she cozies up to the Democratic establishment. And I think you can make an argument that actually the, the things that people love about AOC are things that Katie Porter does far more effectively in her role in Congress. So, She's great, yeah. You know, I mean— it, Katie, you know, the, but again, we don't know, guys, because yeah. the, the, the way things are going to shift and, and to bring it back full circle, we do have QAnon as a reality in America today. Right. That was going to be my next question for you is where well, I just want to say towards the Democratic Party, we also have to factor in that they crush any up and comer who's going for a high power spot. So. If they continue to be as effective at that as the next over the next ten years or so, we won't see any change from them, and you'll have to have a third party or some type of workers-oriented party at some point. Well, but this is the thing, James. Who are the up-and-comers in the in the Democratic Party really? I mean, I mean, who's who's the talent there? I mentioned Katie Porter. We've talked about AOC. Um, there isn't you know, much. I'll give you that. There isn't much. I you know, earlier today I was in a conversation with somebody about Tim Ryan, who was the one guy who had the audacity to challenge um, 
uh, Nancy Pelosi. And Tim Ryan actually checks off a lot of really good progressive boxes for a lot of people, right? But so even but, during like the DNC chair race, it like the races, the tax on the left, you know, that was um, pretty ugly. And that was, and that's not even a rising star. That was just a, you know, they didn't want the Bernie wing of the party to have the DNC chair, even though the DNC said that chair is that position is meaningless. They still managed to smash down any semblance of the left having control of the party platform. Yeah. And I think he, what I don't know about that is how much it's actually about um, policy or how much of it was about blood feud over feelings that that the Bernie wing cost them the election. There was a lot of bitterness right. about that inside. So this is one of the things that's hard to know. And I don't, I'm not one degree of separation from it like I used to be, but uh, a lot of these things that sometimes we think of as being big sort of policy, you know, chess games, sometimes really just comes down to personal animus and feelings of revenge that are being played out over, you know, and it's look, why was Hillary Clinton fast tracked? Because, that goes all the way back to to the to the Hillary Clinton Obama right vitriol in 2008 and that was a bargain it's like okay she's like i'm going to give you my support and i'm going to i'm going to hand them off to you so that you can win but you're going to do x y and z for me and the we know what the x and the y were and it led to the secretary of state position which yeah, i she threatened to walk with all her delegates yep and then but then came when it comes time, I'm I'm taking my spot, and that's at the top of the ticket. And when you're done with your presidency, that's the handoff. And I think that's one of the things that kept Joe Biden out of that race, in addition to Bo Biden dying. But you know, the logical candidate in 2016 was Joe Biden, and Joe Biden carries Pennsylvania, and we're talking about a totally different four years. JP, we we're now crossing over an hour here. Um, do, sure. you, do you want to do you want to do another five minutes just to close this out properly yeah, here? Yeah, okay. yeah, sure. Because I, I really want to. I think. I mean, we we've really gotten down into some nitty gritty weeds on the politics, which is the reason I wanted you on, and I, I think you've made some incredible points. But we started one of your your opening points that I thought was really powerful is. The state we're in right now, when it comes to conspiracy theories, I, I used to be a conspiracy theorist. I have relinquished them almost entirely in the past four years because uh, they're not fun anymore and they're actually dangerous. And with the rise of groups like QAnon, I think we're in a different ball game right now than the traditional politics we've been in in the past. When you talk about the rocks being overturned, um, that's created a whole new dynamic. And when you have groups like QAnon and MAGA that are going to be controlling things and buying into these conspiracy theories based on race, like we're already seeing a new uh, uh, birther kind of movement against Kamala Harris. Yeah. Um, how do we how do we come out of the, Is this the kind of thing where we literally just have to wait? 30 years for a certain aspect of the generations to die off? Or is this, I, I see a whole lot of this stuff being reflected in younger generations. Yeah. Um, and I, I, 
am genuinely terrified right now, which is that I'm not sure there is a logical response to this. It feels to me like the zeitgeist of the country right now is basically, at least right now, an ideological civil war in which both sides thinks the other side is a traitor that needs to be uh, imprisoned and executed. Um, how, how do you see this pushing forward again? How can we possibly, is there any note of optimism here about how we can maybe come out of this a better country or, or anything like that? No. <laughs> I have optimism. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I think you you're right. Young, young people, you know, are, are not, are, are, it's not just among baby boomers that people is, are, associate with, with Trump's MAGA world, which, by the way, I think is most heavily populated by my generation, Gen Xers, which is sad yeah. for me. Um, I think we're sort of in a, in a LARP America. I think everybody is a live action role player now. And it's like, what, what gamer environment do you want to be in? Well, I want to be in an environment where I have incredible meaning to my life because I'm fighting against a global cabal of baby eating, baby eating Satanists who are, who are injecting the, the effluvia from adrenal glands so that they can live long lives. And they're going to take away our, our rights and our cows and our cars and put us in a massive control matrix. And that's what the pandemic is all about. Actually, it's about putting us in this control matrix. They're just turning us into a, into, you know, it's like THX 1138. We're all going into a weird world. So, you know, that appeal, how you break that. I think the, you know, it's not unlike what was going on in the thirties. And it's not unlike the 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 milieu that came out of the end of World War One and the collapse of the global economy. We think about the Great Depression. The Great Depression was not sequestered just to the United States. It was global. And, you know, my graduate degree was on a new comparative through comparative analysis, creating a new model of generic fascism based on including Japan with Italy and Germany. So I have some background on the rise of fascist ideology. And the one thing that fascist ideology does that many, particularly Marxist analysis, does not focus on is that I believe an answer to the crisis of meaning. And when you feel like there's no meaning in your life or you can't find meaning, particularly in an environment in which you have imperial collapse and economic collapse and utter a feeling of utter disenfranchisement, you're looking for something to give you meaning and put you in touch with a collective meaning with other individuals so that you feel like you are a constituent member of a greater whole. But also something simple. And it's got to be nice and nice and cut and dry, binary, baby, good yeah. and evil, good and evil. I can get my head around that. And that's what this provides. And in an environment of where conspiracy theories, which used to be an effective tool that that alternative thinkers would use to try and make sense of fact patterns that did not match the official narrative. That's what conspiracy right. theories to me used to be. Here's right. a fact par pattern. It does not match the official narrative. Let's put those together and see if we can figure out what actually happened. That's gone. Now conspiracy theories is really kind of meta level LARPing where you're just creating this alternative reality to manipulate. And you know, way back when, when the CIA, and we have the document, created the idea of the conspiracy theory to deal with 
Jim Garrison and his investigation, they said, let's call it conspiracy theory. We actually have the document. It's been declassified. It was 68, I think it was. Um, I've written about it. I actually wrote about it for anti-media. One of the last things I wrote for anti-media was when I called Donald Trump the Hindenburg of all conspiracy theories. Um, wow. So, you know, th that used it used to the idea of power was to undermined the questioning of fact patterns that didn't match official narratives by calling them conspiracy theories. And I think what has happened, particularly with Donald Trump, it has been, it is now understood that conspiracy theories themselves are not, it's not a way of trying to undermine inquiry. They can be weaponized and used to, to modulate and direct the behavior of populations you wish to control. Right. Oh, and my so God. I think you're totally that, right, man. With yeah. that, guys, I don't know how we're going to overcome that because we're in a weird post-postmodernist nebulous zone where, yeah. there, where we don't know what truth is. We don't know what, what, what meaning is. And maybe the only thing – I'll give you one ray of hope. And, and because I've spent a lot of time on military Keynesianism, and it's a hobby of mine – and I've written about it uh, a number of times, and I'm very interested in military Keynesianism. And one of the things that I find most interesting about military Keynesianism, Keynesianism, which is one of the things that actually libertarians are attracted to with me because I go, you know, pick apart military Keynesianism, is that it actually shows, it's like a test case that Keynesianism actually works. Like when you give people a living and healthcare and a future and real material investment in their po in the political process because there's a reason why we have the defense budget right it's because people vote for people who promote the defense budget why because their jobs depend upon it and so if you could link get a Keynesian feedback loop in something other than the military, you might be able to generate what FDR generated because that's was FDR's trick. He took Keynesianism and he generated a massive political movement that was broad based that create that was able to do a lot politically and a lot socially and a lot economically and a lot politically because everybody was invested in the system because they were all participating in it economically. And if you can do that, you might be able to overcome something like QAnon, but to get there, that's a heavy lift. Wow, that's heavy stuff, there, man. And uh, you, you've you've been very generous with your with your time today. And uh, I want to give you a chance now to quickly just like pitch to our viewers, um, you know, how they can look up more of your work. How can they sign up to re receive the News Vandal? Uh, news rundown, which I heavily recommend to everyone. Uh, wh where can people find more of your work right now? Just go to newsvandal.com. You know, the last year has been crazy, 2020. So I haven't done a lot of writing, although I just wrote a little thing on Sudan that'll be on antiwar.com, I think, this week. But uh, I haven't been writing much. I normally write, I was writing often for truth out uh, i haven't written for consourcing news for a long time since bob perry died but if you go to newsvandal.com it's spelled like it sounds there'll be a pop-up box you can sign up for the rundown five days a week i i aggregate stories i go to hundreds of websites if you look at it you're going to see websites you like and websites you don't like you're going to see opinions you agree with and opinions you don't agree with i usually put them side by side so that so that i aggregate you decide 
Uh, and the way to handle the rundown is you're going to see a bunch of headlines. I never change a single headline. And the news vandalism is I vandalize the news that's out there. So what I do is I take all the headlines that are produced on a given day, news cycle, and I stack them so that if you read them in order, it, they tell a meta story. So you, you could never click on a single story I compile, and I think you'd be better informed than almost anybody you'd see on cable news. Just read the stories in order. It'll take you about 10 minutes. And it's just like reading one story, but it's reading a massive story that encapsulates the, the news cycle of the last 20, 24 hours as best as I can do so. It's hard to do now because there is so much news. It is like a tidal wave. There are so many things out there. But, uh, and that comes out five days a week. I've been doing that for almost 10 years, five days a week. I've never missed a day. And, um, and so there's that. And a lot of what I've written is also on my newsvandal.com website. Uh, stories that I've written for other outlets, I've been able to repurpose and put it there. And but if you you know Google me, you you, you can find me here and there, jpsatilli.com. But uh, try try the rundown, see if you can see if it's up your alley. And if it is, I think you'll find it very very interesting. It, there you go, folks. And I'm telling you, this is this is basically, in my opinion, uh, a more educated kind of drudge report um, and uh, and not not partisan either as easy's made clear and you know JP we actually didn't even get to speak about some things I wanted to get into like transhumanism and 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 technology so we, we might have to have you back on again oh an hour point. on the singularity <laughs> an hour on the singularity man I think we should do that but but for but for right now I we really appreciate you coming on man and keep up doing all the incredible work you're yeah, doing thank you Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Okay, All right. Good? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was great, man. Uh, yeah, very good. We'll let you know when it's when it's posted, and uh, really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, I'm getting back to editing this week, so we'll be putting stuff out. Cool. Yeah, my pleasure, and uh, it was fun. Take care, guys. Yeah, take care, buddy. I was born in Dublin Street, where the loyal drums do beat, and the lovely English feet trampled over us and each and every night when my father came home tight he'd invite the neighbors outside with this chorus come out you black and tans come out and fight me like a man show your wife that you want medals down in flanders tell them how the ira made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kilachandra. Come let me hear you tell how you slammed the great Bonnell When you fought them well and truly persecuted Where are the smears and jeers that you bravely let us hear When our heroes of 16 were executed Come out you black and tans, come out and fight me like a man Show your wife, tell you and medals down in Flanders Tell them how the IRA made you run like hell away that was our interview with J.P. Satilli. He's a fucking cool guy, good reporter. Um, I, I think a, a, an ethical journalist in many ways. And I think he, if you follow him on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, you'll see, I think he, he he's really, I think, an important voice in terms of splitting the difference between um, the insanity on both sides. So I'm glad we got to interview him. And uh, what what were your thoughts on that, uh, Jim? I think it was insightful. He knows, I mean, 
As for as fucked up as the American electoral and like Republican system is, he definitely has a good grasp on it. So I I was happy to hear from him. Um, we had some interesting conversations. I loved our discussion about like the idea of the courts over the next like 80 years. Um, I think he definitely gave us a nice perspective onto into domestic American policy. And next week, we'll be back with something on American foreign policy and what that's likely to look like under Joe Biden. Sure. I, I, I want to have him back. I want to have JP back, to be honest. I, yeah, I, I agree. I, 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 I wouldn't honestly like I wouldn't mind having him back once a month, even for just an update, man. I love I love his I love his analysis. I think it's I think he uh, I think he really brings a lot to the table in terms of analyzing some of this stuff. I definitely think he'll be back. And I think he provides a good perspective on domestic politics. Right. Let's and so, yeah, like, like you said, like next week and then this is, some this more is gonna be an interesting we'll phase. This is going to be an interesting phase as we transition to back transition back to a kind of consortium of neoliberal and neoconservative foreign policy right. elements that are going to be working together now. And look, that is going to be the next big challenge is the the left is going to have to step up and find a way to challenge um, all the uh, people who've gone dark. All the, you know, it's they're going to have to find a way to make it clear to them that we will not accept more wars. Um, we will not accept if if Biden is going to try and do more against Yemen. Uh, we're not going to accept that. And we will support a primary challenge to him in 2024 if he's going to do that shit. And I think that's something we will be talking about in the next episode. Biden wants to re-enter the JCPOA with Iran, but he also believes Iran has become too powerful. So I think it's time we talk about what Biden's foreign policy will look like and where he'll be applying pressure. Absolutely. And, and we'll I get into that'll be next week. Definitely. We'll get in get into more of that. But uh thank you. Thank you all for listening. Uh we're still kind of getting this thing going. Uh, but we're we're gung ho about it, and we appreciate anyone who's listening. Absolutely, and this is all in the archive, and people will appreciate it when they hear it. So, and this has been another episode of The Left Is Dead with your hosts, me, James Carey, and Jake Anderson. And thank you for listening. One thing with me, the nice part: I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel. I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them. Everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss.